Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells, A Story of the Future. This book is all about uh, the environment, the climate. Most people have heard, you know, global warming and climate change and, you know, maybe we think that everything's just getting hotter. But this book is really about the actual specifics of what actually happens to planet Earth. If things get warmer, what is the what does the world look like? And David, he doesn't really hold back at all. He just absolutely unleashes with the most terrifying data he can find about how fucked we're going to be in the future. Because a lot of us, I think we feel like we need to be conservative about our estimates that are coming, but there's so much uncertainty in the models. David's probably leaning toward the more extreme and negative side, and I think you can't write off some of the scenarios that he outlines in this book. He talks about mass extinctions of all of the living things on planet Earth. He says that before this one that we're currently living through, there's been five mass extinctions. One of those was a a big asteroid coming to wipe out the dinosaurs, but all the other four were due to climate. And he's saying that we're in the middle of one right now as well. So the worst one or the most notorious was about 250 million years ago. So this was the most wild extinction. And this is when the planet warmed up by five degrees. And that warming was triggered by the release of methane, which is another greenhouse gas, which really ended all but a slither of life on Earth. And, uh, you know, as you were about to hear in the book, five degrees isn't out of the question for us. And we're actually adding carbon into the atmosphere at a faster rate than was uh, methane was going into the atmosphere 250 million years ago. Yeah, because we don't see day-to-day things changing, it feels like... You know, it's just a it's a slow, gradual thing. He's, but he says that this slowness of climate change is actually a bit of a fairy tale. He says that that fairy tale is almost as bad as the fairy tale that's saying there is no there is no climate change. But he's saying that it, whilst day to day we probably aren't seeing specific things happening, it's definitely not happening slowly. If you look at you know over the span of years, decades, centuries, millennia, it's actually changing very very quickly. So how much warmer is the planet actually going to get? According to some of the experts at the International Panel of Climate Change, they're really some of them aren't on the conservative side. So it is possible for us to land at five degrees. A little bit more likely to be four. But the the median is saying it's about between two and three degrees has been the best accurate about how much we can actually warm this planet up. Mate, what does that actually mean? Two or, like it sounds like oh, two degrees. Actually, it's pretty cold today. I wouldn't mind two degrees of extra warmth at the moment. <laughs> that's uh, that's what you know. And that crosses my mind as well. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I love warm weather. I don't really like winter. <laughs> but uh, as we'll find out, it's it's a lot more to do with that. And, and because of that, we kind of trivialize what the difference is, but mm. the difference between two to three degrees and three to four and four to five, it's absolutely massive in terms of how much it impacts the whole entire planet. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a small, trivial thing. And maybe that's why there isn't so much concern that, yeah, if, the, if it warms up half a degree or one degree or two degrees, like it seems like that's, that's not going to uh, have any major impacts. But what he drills down into is the specific things of what exactly happens what does one degree look like what does two degrees look like what does three degrees look like and so on so you look outside and you know one one of these some of these disasters happen some of the people who are you know who really care about climate change i'll say oh yeah this hurricane was because of climate change and um you know the people who are a bit more skeptical and say how the fuck can you say that's from from (laughs) this one specifically from climate change but what david wallace wells talks about is when these big natural disasters come like uh, hurricanes he says you can't really claim that 
climate change fully caused the this massive weather event, but you could say that this hurricane, for example, owes 40% of its power due to man-caused uh, anthropic climate change. Yeah, you can't say that... Obviously, hurricanes have always happened and extreme weather events have happened in the past. Uh, and so, it's it, obviously, to someone who thinks that there's nothing happening, that's, well, this has always happened, this is just another one. But obviously, the frequency of these occurring and the intensity at which these occur uh, can be, I guess, attributed to, okay, well, if, what's, the, what's the normal range over the last uh, you know, thousands or millions of years and what, is it, what are we currently looking like? Maybe that's how we can work out what kind of impact the climate change is having on these. Soon, what we used to perceive as extreme weather events uh, in a generation, people are just going to look yeah. out the side and say, oh, it's just the weather. And, you know, mm. just the weather might be freaking hurricane with just cows flying in the air <laughs> and tornadoes and just wild. And that's just going to be normal weather. Yeah. What we, David. <laughs> what we think of uh, as a disaster is just going to be normal, which is no good. The thing that contributes to these things is what he calls cascades. And so, this is the things that once uh, it's almost like a, a feedback loop, I guess. Once something starts happening, uh, the feedback loop kicks in and makes it more and more extreme. So, he's got a range of cascades here. The first one being about Arctic ice. So, this is the most popularized one. As the planet warms, the ice caps melt. And the ice caps, what they do is they reflect the sunlight back into, into space. So, that means the Earth doesn't absorb the heat. But if there's no ice there and it's just the ocean, the heat gets absorbed by the ocean instead, which makes the world warmer, which means more ice gets melted, which means there's more heat absorbed by the water and so forth. So, that's a negative feedback loop. But on top of that, the ice actually contains permafrost, which has about 1.8 trillion tons of carbon, which is more than twice as much as in the Earth's atmosphere today. So, you know, not only does it absorb more heat, it releases more CO2 in the process. So, a really shithouse uh, mm. feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. Another one of these cascades is forest fires. So, if the temperature increases, it means that the conditions for fires, are, uh, it's more favorable for fires. And then if there's more fires, it means there's fewer trees. And because trees are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, it means that less trees means less carbon is being sucked out, which means there's more carbon in the atmosphere remaining, which again means higher temperatures, which then continues on higher temperatures, more fires, less trees, more carbon, high temperatures, so on. Another one is water vapor. Uh, I don't think a lot of people understand that water is actually a, a greenhouse gas as well. But usually there's a natural limit on how much water is in the atmosphere. So when we melt more ice, then there's going to be more water vapor in the air, which means it's more uh, another greenhouse gas in the air like CO2, meaning there's more greenhouse effect, meaning there's going to be more ice melting, meaning more water in the air. And again, a negative feedback loop. Mm. So these are some of the, the cascades or these negative feedback loops where you know once something starts happening it makes the next step more and more likely and it sort of continues on in that in that regard and these are just the ones we know of and this is why they talk about you know we need to limit the increase in temperatures to you know a maximum of 2 degrees because once these sort of feedback loops get kicked into action it's going to be really really tough to stop but they're just the ones we know about of course there are going to be ones that we don't yet know about that could be you know there could be a whole range of different things that get kicked off that we haven't even expected yet yeah, unknown unknowns are a really big deal in complex systems that we don't really understand. And I don't think we fully understand the planet. There is most likely going to be unknown unknowns that you know could be causing most of the damage a lot more than the ones we believe today. 
Also, there could be unknown unknowns that might be working in our favour. But either way, we don't really know and there's a lot of uncertainty in this area. So, what this all comes down to, you know, right now, shit's going down, (laughs) really, isn't it? Yeah. Recently, there was Hurricane Harvey, which was actually a one in 500,000 year event. So, one in 500,000, when you start hitting 500,000, it just Mm. becomes ridiculous, the timeline. So, for a bit of context, only 2,000 years ago, Jesus was floating around the earth, walking on water. Yeah. Um, so, that means 250 times back between now and then was the mm. last time this the hurricane of this magnitude hit. So, it's completely unheard of. Right. So, if another, if another one of these hits sometime soon, I think that 500,000 is obviously way off. Obviously, that's what was expected in the past. If, we're, if these are starting to become more and more regular, then it, I think that's probably an, uh, an interesting in- indication that things might be changing. And in the last 40 years, more than half of the world's vertebrate animals have died. Over the last 20 years, flying insects population has died by 75%. So, these out-of-control typhoons, tornadoes, floods, droughts, and you know the planet being assaulted by wild stuff, it's going to start happening a lot more regularly. Whilst there is a lot of uncertainty and all the things that we're saying, like these, you know, the scientists can make their models and make predictions, and but we really don't... No, we, we can't ever 100% know, but people are obviously starting to understand that things are happening. We probably do need to take some kind of action. You know, over the last 80, 100 years of, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, we've made a lot of changes that weren't sort of natural processes in the earth. And we probably need to think, okay, what can we sort of start to do to take some action the other way? And so there has been some action taken. So 1997, the Kyoto Protocol, that was sort of the the first big one where all the world leaders got together and had a discussion and said, okay, maybe it's time to start thinking about this. Which is all good and well and they met, but really nothing. (laughs) They did jack shit (laughs) after that. 20 years on, yeah. 20 years on, really nothing happened. It was just a speaking event about bullshit. And then Paris (laughs) uh, in 2016, Similar again, the whole world got together and it was quite optimistic and everyone was a bit excited. Uh, they were had the target of limiting warming to two degrees. But again, since then, pretty much none of the developing countries are on target to meet uh, to meet what their obligations or their goals have been. Yeah, there's probably, a, maybe this is a little, a little bit conspiratorial or thinking negatively of politicians, but obviously it, it's going to take some kind of hard actions and maybe a little bit of short-term pain and everyone probably thinks oh maybe we're not on track now we'll just do we'll do more later we'll accelerate the change later but right now we need to focus on you know mm. building the economy or getting more jobs or whatever and we'll, we'll focus on the climate later yeah and us for us developed countries you know it's one challenge but it's a whole different beast for developing countries because all of us in australia the us england canada and so forth our rise in terms of our well-being and our standard of living pretty much exactly correlates with the amount of CO2 that mm-hmm. we're pumping into the air. So now China and India, you know, they've got the same goals as us. They want to improve their standard of living, have better healthcare and education and transport and all of these things. And because they're not developed yet, you know, how are they going to reach our standard of living? Are they going to rely on fossil fuels as well? Uh, which is going to, you know, shoot us well past two degrees or are they going to build different kinds of infrastructure? So, I think it does pay to speculate as to what the future could look like. You know, we've we've got this very abstract, nebulous idea. We all sort of hear about climate change. We don't really know what the tangible day-to-day actual reality of what things might look like. Uh, And I don't think people often speculate about it. This is what this book does. This book goes through... You know, a whole range of different scenarios at a whole range of different uh, increases in, in the average temperatures. 
which is what this book does. But probably on the day-to-day level, we don't do it for a whole range of reasons, whether it's maybe we've just got faith in the market or in the government. Maybe there's a bit of skepticism around you know, the climate extremists, so we don't want to be sort of associated with those people. Maybe there's a bit of indifference or maybe a bit of uh, sense of helplessness. Maybe there's Maybe we think that, you know, things are important in terms of focusing on industrial progress rather than thinking about the environment. There's all these range of reasons as to maybe why we're not speculating as to what the future could look like. That's it. So, um, you know, we don't like to speculate about the future and that's what exactly he does in the next part of the book. So, you know, we're in store for a whole bunch of shit. He goes through 12 different things in the book. We're going to cover uh, the six ones that we think that um, are most wild (laughs) and the first one he talks about is heat death all mammals have this sort of safe range that we live within obviously if if things are too extremely cold or too extremely hot we're not going to survive as mammals we we can't we we just can't cop it at the moment obviously we're in the nice goldilocks zone where it's not too hot not too cold it's just right for where we are at the moment but of course the risk is if some of these projections are correct if the uh, world, you know, warms by two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight degrees. Maybe we're going to push ourselves outside that nice, comfortable, safe range, and that could mean um, some pretty deadly consequences. So, how we actually evolved in, you know, the temperature we're at now, we use respiration and sweat to really cool the body down. So, as we release the water from the body, it evaporates off the body, taking heat outside of your body to cool it down, and as the water evaporates into the air. But if the air is already at a certain temperature, our whole respiratory system really stops working. Heat exhaustion and obviously consequently heat death is one of the cruelest punishments to a human body. As you said, we need to we breathe and we perspire to as a way to cool ourselves down. If the air around us is too hot, it's not going to cool ourselves down. He says that first comes heat exhaustion and with that comes things like dehydration, profuse sweating, nausea, headaches... And the issue is after a certain point, after all this profuse sweating, our body actually starts to shut down and it actually stops sweating. And that's pretty much when we're cooked. Once we stop sweating, that's pretty much game over. Our body is no longer trying to cool itself down. It's just focusing all its efforts on the most vital organs to just in any attempt to try to save ourselves. Yeah, you don't want that happening. Heat exhaustion is a really bad thing. So one of the trends that's happening in the world is that we're all moving to cities and Unfortunately, cities is, isn't going to be the safest place to go, I guess, if you've got a bit of really nice aircon, but if that fails, <laughs> then, you're, then you're pretty cooked, literally. Um, <laughs> but what happens in cities is the heat island effect. So, there's obviously a lot of asphalt and, and concrete, and what concrete can do when you use the sun, it, it takes in a lot of heat. So, when it goes into nighttime, it's really storing that heat and then starts releasing it during the night time and then it means our our cities are overall much hotter than they need to be originally yeah it's taking that heat during the day and release it during the night so it's just gonna if you're in a city where there's concrete and asphalt everywhere it's just gonna get hotter and hotter and hotter in fact since 1980 the planet has experienced a 50-fold increase in dangerous heat waves and he says that in the since 1500 the five warmest summers have all occurred since 2002 so talking about you know over 500 years of time the five hottest summers have all happened in the last you know 15 17 years mm-hmm. which is um which is probably not a good uh, sign of the direction that we're heading no, it's not a good sign of, of warming is it? it's getting pretty warm pretty quickly and there's a bit of a big david wallace uh, speculation here but he reckons 
that by 20, 2080, the, what we have as our hottest day today will occur 100 days per year in 2080. That's not good either. No. So as we said at the start, there's a lot. Of, there's a bit of uncertainty about what we're going to land at. But if it does land on the not as good side of the spectrum, say at four degrees, wildfires are going to burn 16 times as much in some parts of the world. At five degrees, some parts of the globe are going to be completely uninhabitable and unsurvivable for humans. And at the very end of the spectrum, at seven degrees, it's going to become impossible to live in a lot of the equatorial band. And at the tropics, after a few hours outside, your whole entire body is going to start to be cooked to death from that heat exhaustion, like I was saying earlier. And if you think about the amount of population of people in that band, you know, there's uh, a lot of spill-on effects from, you know, people just not being able to live in there at all. That's the first big one is that heat death. The second big one he talks about is, is hunger. So, if the global temperatures are rising, agriculture plants the yield of the food that we're growing is going to be severely impacted and at the moment obviously the the yields we're getting and the the growth of the the crops is really based on the environment the climate that we're living in at the moment it's we're always working to optimize what we can do but the thing is whilst we've optimized for today's level as soon as things start to warm up the yields of our crops are going to be decreased and then as a result obviously that means less food for people so, as a rule of thumb, he says, for every degree of warming that occurs, our yields in terms of our crops are going to drop by 10%. So, if we're going to warm up by 5 degrees, we're going to lose 50% of all our food to feed the planet. And this is at the same time that our population mm. is increasing. So, globally, grain accounts for 40% of our diet. Um, and when you add the other things like soybeans and corn, we're up to about you know, two-thirds of our, our diet that we're relying on agriculture for. Yeah, so if we're, if we're talking about two-thirds of our diet coming from grains, corn, soybeans, if we're population is increasing and at the same time the yields of our crops are decreasing, that's pretty much the, you know, that's the worst case scenario. All things are going bad there. So we've got, we're needing two-thirds of our food to come from these sources. The temperature is increasing by five degrees, meaning we're going to lose half of the, the yields of our crops. At the same time, the population, population is increasing by 50%. Uh, all of these things spell trouble. Absolutely. So, the third big risk that we're going to be really dealing with in the future is drowning. And this is obviously from the ice caps melting. So, in 2018, there was a study showing that the rate of melting in the ice has actually tripled uh, in the last decade. So, from 1992 to 1997, it lost 49 billion tonnes. But then from 2012 to 2017, it lost 219 billion tons of ice. Man, that's a hell of a lot of ice, 219 billion tons. When it gets to that number, it's just really hard to yeah. fathom what it is, but that's <laughs> it's just a lot of ice, isn't it? Yeah, that's a hell of a lot of, of ice. And as you, as you said, that you know, with there's carbon stored in that ice, so once that melts, that gets released. And like we said before, it's like that cascade where it's just getting worse and worse and worse. But another, obviously, another obvious thing is with that ice melting, it means that the sea levels are rising. And so, NASA says that, you know, three feet of sea level rise is probably like a, a minimum. That's like a, that's a lot. That's almost a meter of sea level rising. So, if you're, you know, near the beach, maybe your house is uh, underwater. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Sal, get out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but <laughs> obviously, the country. On a slightly more more serious note, obviously, there's a a lot of islands uh, around the world mm. that you know they're saying could be completely underwater, and that's saying that you know at the minimum three feet could be up to eight feet by some other projections, and then you know whole countries could be underwater. Yeah, it's complete climate injustice, isn't it? Like us people here, you know, we're probably at very low risk of getting the most affected compared to some of these islands and, you know, our countries in the developed world are the ones who mm. uh, cause this whole thing uh, in a lot of ways. So, you know, NASA says three feet is a minimum. There's other guesses so or predictions, say, from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. They're, they reckon it's going to be closer to eight feet. One specific example he talks about is, is Jakarta. So, obviously, there are a bunch of smaller islands, but if you look at Jakarta, it's one of the world's fastest growing cities. It's home to 10 million people. And he's saying that, you know, if some of these projections are right, by 2050, that's only 30 years away, Jakarta could be entirely underwater. Mm. So, you know, with the sea levels rising, it, you can build infrastructure to really block the water from coming into these cities. And there's all these things you can do. But if nothing is taken to curb these emissions, the damages caused by the sea level rising, he says, could be up to $100 trillion per year by 2100, which is more than the GDP in the world today. Not sure how, <laughs> <laughs> how it's possible to cost more than the world's GDP. But there's a lot more um, estimates that are you know, on the lower end of $14 trillion, which is about 20% of today's GDP. So either way, even at 20%, it's just a ridiculous number. Uh, if you think about using the, uh, 20% of all of our work to just maintain and uh, stop the, the water from intruding rather than spending those resources into some more productive goals of society, it's a huge slice of our uh, of, of the action. So that's with ice melting and, and the sea levels rising. And on I guess uh, almost the complete opposite is wildfire. So we briefly talked about the cascade of wildfire where, you know, if trees die whether that's their natural process or by fire or humans chopping them down they're releasing into the atmosphere the carbon that they've stored within them and you know for for centuries trees have been sucking in carbon some of this gets released when there's a fire and obviously with that tree gone it means they're not sucking in more carbon in the future as well so this is a huge risk of releasing co2 in the atmosphere in indonesia in 1997 there was peatland fires which released 2.6 billion tons of carbon which is 40% of the average annual emissions level, which is wild. And more recently, we've got that Brazilian motherfucker, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, He was elected president of Brazil, promising to open up the rainforest for development. So, this is actually what was in print by David, not, you know, prior to what's been in the news recently. And, you know, his plan was to, between 2021 and 2030, open up, release a lot of the Amazon open for development, and, you know, that was his promise when he got elected and really he is actually fulfilling that promise as terrifying as it, as it is by, you know, releasing um, destruction of the whole Amazon, which is accountable for a lot of the oxygen that we breathe in the air. Yeah, just on that deforestation element, that's but the, the Amazon deforestation that's going on is 12% of the carbon emissions. And then if we're talking about how, if that's leading to more forest fires, forest fires can be up to 25% of our, of our carbon emissions. So this is some pretty serious stuff that obviously, uh, again, it's this cascade. Once, it, once it's sort of triggered and it starts moving in that direction, it's going to be very, very hard to stop it. The fifth tragedy that's going to be heaped upon us is dying oceans. If you think about the ocean, it's really 
different world to what we have on land. If you've been scuba diving before, you realize that you go into the water and it's a completely different universe underwater compared to what it is above land. So, there is so many animals that, you know, have huge ecosystems that are relying on the water. And as we increase the temperature of that, you know, there's going to be huge ecosystems that fall down and get smashed up. Yeah, we might think about the ocean as, you know, going to the beach or, you know, going scuba diving or snorkeling and checking out the coral and the fish. Uh, But the ocean is 70% of the Earth's surface. So, obviously, that's uh, a massive amount is ocean. And it's not just, you know, the nice beach holidays, but it's also, you know, it feeds us humans but there's so, so much life under the ocean that could be impacted by, you know, by, this, uh, by this climate change. So, what happens as the ocean warms, there's a, there's a bit of a ripple effect that happens. So, there's this nutrient called zooxanthellae, which uh, I'll probably really cook the pronunciation, but it's uh, quite a long word that begins with said, <laughs> <laughs> that it actually provides through photosynthesis, photosynthesis about 90% of the energy needs of the coral. So, once we remove that, there's no... Uh, nutrient be able to supply to the coral. So, what happens after the ocean warms, we lose that nutrient, all of a sudden, the coral can no longer survive. I was at the, I think about 12 months ago, I went and uh, snorkeled on the Great Barrier Reef and uh, it wasn't that impressive. Everything's mm. dying off. Uh, obviously, the the people that were there, the guides, I guess, who were, who were there were talking about, you know, how things are slowly dying and obviously, once it dies off, you can't you can't revive it if it gets to the point where the oceans have warmed too much where the uh, it's not possible for the coral to survive once it's gone it's gone yeah as much as fifty percent of the Great Barrier Reef has actually been destroyed you know I hear stories of of uh, tourist guides going in the ocean going down and then they see you know twelve what was twelve months ago it was a living ecosystem now completely dead and when they get back onto the boat their stories of them just like bawling their eyes out because you know, they've got their finger on the pulse of seeing all this destruction that's actually happening right now on the planet in our lifetime. And the sixth papa of climate change, we've talked about all the physical and environmental things, there's also uh, a massive, massive impact on the economy to the point of potential economic collapse. So the five topics that we just covered, there's um, 12 total in the book, for, for example, heat death, hunger, uh, the oceans rising, wildfire and dying oceans, all of these things and all the, the problems that are going to occur, it's going to cost a lot of money to actually protect ourselves from. And when we start pouring more and more money into just maintaining the, from the effects that happen from global warming, you know, there's a real risk that our economies are going to collapse. And remember, our economies at the moment, capitalism just relies on really infinite growth and infinite growth on a finite planet, there's going to be some kind of collision of some sorts. And, you know, there's a big argument to say that in our lifetime, in the next few decades, this collision is actually going to occur. So, there are a lot of people who think that free markets are just going to solve all the problems and all the problems of of climate change. But really, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in that. Free markets can't solve anything. There are benefits of, of free markets, but there's also a lot of risks that come with it. Yeah, if the argument, the argument might be that obviously the the free market, you know, capitalism it wants to do whatever is going to be the most beneficial for itself, and that you know wants to make as much money as possible, as much profit as possible, as as much value as possible. So they're saying that you know if things like you know fossil fuels, if we start to if that becomes less profitable, or you know we start to see the effects on that, or maybe the 
externalities have been internalized by some of these companies. Maybe they move towards you know trying to fix the environment because it's going to be more valuable for them. But I think that's a that's a big assumption that thinking that okay, they, it's, if it's going to be better for them, they're going to fix it. But I think a lot of the free market is very short term as well, though. Well, yeah, fixing the environment. There's no real economic incentive mm. at all. So there are some areas that you know have to be covered and maintained by regulation and the government. So the free market capitalists probably wouldn't um, accept something like that. So the bad news is there's a lot of places in the earth where you know a lot of GDP is going to get um, taken away. So he says that for every degree increase of Celsius warming, it's going to reduce economic growth by 1%. So for most countries, it's going to go in the wrong direction. But for the really cold countries, it's actually going to get a little bit better for you. So if you're listening right now and you're from Russia or Scandinavia, and same with Greenland, you know, it's actually going to get better for your countries in terms of GDP. So if you're listening right now, um, we haven't mentioned it, but apparently Australia is the worst out of all the developed countries. It's going to be in the worst position for climate change. So, uh, you know, if you're in Australia, maybe we're best off going out and moving with all the beautiful people in Norway and Russia. <laughs> so, yeah, whilst there is benefit to those countries, there's obviously a lot of countries, specifically more towards the equator and the tropics, that are going to get pretty well destroyed. He says that there's going to be some big losses in places like Africa, Mexico, Brazil. You know, some of these places are going to be completely cooked. So, the whole logic of the free market, it's really flipping on its head. You know, if you really look into the future, you got to start thinking how expensive is it not to act on climate change, even if we take, it's not even going to add up, even if we take the most aggressive action today. So, right now, we're, we're burning fossil fuels at a very fast rate and we're still relying on them. And we know what the solutions are, but we're not really taking any action to avoiding some of these wild, wild consequences that are coming into the future. Um, he kind of covers in a few pages a few of the biases of why we're not doing anything. We've kind of added a bit of salt and pepper taken from other books as well to really explore some of the biases that we're having for inaction. Yeah, he gave us a little taste uh, in the book, but having just read Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, we think some good things to apply as to why people aren't thinking about it or as to why we're not taking action. So, obviously, one of the big puppers from Thinking Fast and Slow uh, is what you see is all there is. And I think that can apply very directly to this. You know, if we're sitting in our nice uh, apartments when we've got air conditioning during summer and, you know, we'd like to go to the beach and chill out and during winter we've got um, heating or fires to warm us up, we think it's all fine, you know. It's just, it seems to be very much the way it's always been. You know, there's seasons, there's, you know, maybe it's a little bit hotter some years, maybe it's a little bit colder some years, but we just think what we see is all there is. It's pretty pretty safe, pretty comfortable, we're all good. Even if you read a book like this and it just sounds like there's absolute chaos, but as you're reading it, you're sitting at a cafe and it's nice and sunny outside, you know, all you see is it just seems everything's fine and you don't really, we don't really stop to consider what we don't know. We only just ponder on what we do know and what we see. Another big bias for inaction is survivorship bias. So, if, if you think about your mate who's trying to flog um, energy supplements onto you, who's in, in network marketing and, you know, he's earning $10,000 a month in passive income, it sounds, all, it sounds all good and, you know, you might be really persuaded to join like a company in the pyramid scheme for that reason. But what you're hearing about is the person who's survived through and is actually winning in network marketing, you don't hear about all the, all the losers who just failed and, you know, had to sell their wedding rings and mortgage their homes to, um, to pay for all the, the expensive supplements. 
Yeah, you don't hear about the, you know, for that every one person that made it, you don't hear about the other 10,000 that had a crack and went bust and lost all their friends mm. uh, as a result. So that's what this sort of survivorship bias is like. You know, the same as, you know, if you go to a casino, you see all the rich people come out who have made a lot of money that night and tell you that it was a, uh, you know, the casino is a great way to make money. Well, you're not looking about the bloke who's uh, who's eating uh, two-minute noodles sleeping on the street that night because he lost <laughs> all their money. That's right. I think the casino is a really good analogy. If you think about it, throughout history, there's been hundreds and hundreds of civilizations that have failed and failed and completely died off. But they're not around to tell us the stories of how they failed and died off and how they exploited the land and, and whatnot and what was the cause of their demise. The only culture that we can hear from is the one right now that has actually survived. And, you know, we might be the ones who've been playing in the casino for the development of our culture since the use of fossil fuels. And we're walking out to the casino thinking, yep, fossil fuels are absolutely beautiful. They've mm. caused all this economic growth and increase in well-being, when in reality we're inside the casino where the house is actually playing a net negative game. Another big popper is associative coherence. So there's a, a bit of a mismatch, I guess, between the benefits and the risks. So sort of like you say, if we if we think that things are all good, we think fossil fuels are great for uh, economic growth, we probably neglect to consider the risks of using fossil fuels. So this is one of our biases that we can't really do. If something is higher benefit, we can't really associate the high risk with it. They should be two mutually exclusive things you know benefit is completely different to risk but if we think something's high benefit we don't see it as high risk at all so for those people who think technology is really high benefit they think it's low risk and quite similar when it comes to free markets if people think free markets have high benefits they can't see that it's high risk they can't hold them both in in the same frame of mind another one is intuitions versus formulas so, we might think that we're really good with our intuition. We might think that we have good ideas or that we can have a good assessment of the world and, you know, just based on our intelligence and our, our own sort of research and guesstimations, we might think we've got a good view of things, but really the formulas are what is actually going to give us the most accurate view. So, you know, if, if you're thinking out there that you've uh, read a lot of different books and read a lot of science papers and watched a lot of documentaries, you've got a good feel for what's going on. Uh, it's probably going to be more reliable to look at the formulas. Yeah, absolutely. Kahneman in Think Fast and Slow, he showed us how experienced radiologists um, evaluate x-rays and then they can tr contradict themselves 20% of the time. So they get the prediction of cancer wrong or they flip the other way and say you don't have cancer 20% of the time, which is absolutely ridiculous. Whereas when they start relying on formulas to make the predictions, you know, it's almost entirely accurate. But still humans sometimes rely on their intuitions and we've got this overconfidence in our own intelligence rather than just looking at objective facts and formulas. Another big one is the sunk cost fallacy. So the sunk cost fallacy means that any kind of investment we've done, whether that's time, energy, money in the past, we use that to dictate what we should do in the future. So maybe as a as a personal example, if you've done a four year law degree then you think, I better go start working in law. You think that that four years is invested into a career in law. If you get a year in and think you're not really liking law, you're probably still going to be uh, a sucker to that four years that you've already invested as opposed to thinking that cost, it's gone, it's sunk. There's nothing I can do to change it. The only thing I can change is what happens from here. Yeah, if you're a rational person, you'll just drop what you've spent previously and look at purely the return on investment into the future and that's mm. it. Another another personal example is last night I was watching a movie, mm. got an hour of the way in, it was a 
absolute piece of shit movie but I was already invested so I stuck it out to the end. I should have just ignored the sunk cost and turned it off, walked out. Yeah. But so, I didn't because I was irrational <laughs> and I just got sucked in. It didn't improve. Yeah, that's right. So like that movie by Rebel Wilson you were watching last <laughs> night which is an she absolute sucks, stinker. Man. She's she a very bad actor. <laughs> but anyway, like that. So, Rebel Wilson, what Rebel Wilson was to that piece of shit movie. Um, our infrastructure for dirty fossil fuel is for our energy grid. We've spent so much money in producing the infrastructure for fossil fuels and how our modern economy works that it's really hard to just disregard and um, delete all the infrastructure for a centralized grid and say it goes to a decentralized grid where you're using solar and we're basically making everything redundant. There's a lot of sunk costs there that's just really hard for us to just release. The other one is like the people, not just the infrastructure and the systems themselves. What about the workers who are in there? You know, those people have worked in the industry for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's going to be very hard for them to suddenly think, okay, this is not the right place for me to work. What can I do instead? Uh, it's going to be almost impossible, in fact, I'd say. Yeah, it's all good and well for regulators to plan all this education for these people to transition out of these these dirty jobs. But for them themselves, it's you know they've invested so long and so much in, in developing their skills. It's um, yeah, it's going to be a real pain to to get out of there. And then the final one, mate, hit us with confirmation bias. I think this has to be the biggest one out of all of these. Confirmation bias is you know once you've got an idea in your mind, once you've sort of made up your mind on a on a topic. Anything you watch, see, read, hear, think about is going to be influenced by that that idea that you've already got. So if you think climate change is real, climate change is happening, the types of books you read and the types of information you take from those books is all going to confirm that belief. And obviously, the other way, if you think, no, climate change, these scientists, they're all bullshit, uh, it's just a conspiracy, then everything you read is going to confirm that idea as well. So once you've got an idea in your mind, it's very hard for you to rationally evaluate the other side of the argument. Yeah, your brain's just going to take in the information in the path of least resistance and that's the path of least resistance is whatever fits with your existing worldview. And you might think, oh shit, you know, really smart people think climate change isn't real or is or whatever it might be. And you might think, all right, these, this really intelligent person, surely they wouldn't fall into confirmation bias. They can just look at facts objectively but it actually goes the other way. The people who are more intelligent are more prone to motivated reasoning. And rather than dislodge their existing belief, they're actually much better at finding supporting arguments for whatever their confirmation bias is already. Yeah, those smart people are probably better at uh, manipulating the data or twisting the statistics in a way that supports their arguments. And so I'd say, you know, if this is the, a type of book, uh, I'd probably say by someone who's got a very strong belief one way and he sort of plucked the information uh, that supports that. If you, if you probably think that climate change is made up, uh, I guess you're probably not listening at this point. You've probably switched off already because some of this stuff is just, Absolutely. you think it's a crock of shit. Yeah, and you could probably find a podcast that is just contradicting everything we say and you can probably find a lot of books that just say climate change is, is bullshit as well. So, you know, confirmation bias is a really, um, really difficult thing to, to get over. So, we're at a, right now at a point of history where there's huge risks of absolute chaos coming in the future and we have a bias at the moment for inaction. We're not doing a hell of a lot. If you think about the from the context of the improbabilities of humans actually being here on Earth, right? We're in this Goldilocks zone where we've evolved in this narrow band of temperature and, uh, you know, conditions for us to flourish as a species. 
if you think about on the level of the or the, the time horizon of the universe, humans haven't been around for that long at all. And it's just like that we've hit this perfect sweet spot. The conditions were perfectly right for humans at this point in time. If we start uh, tinkering with that and if things start changing, who knows what might happen? Maybe we push ourselves beyond that perfect Goldilocks zone and uh, that could spell a hell of a lot of trouble. If you're one of the... And as we said, if you're one of the ones falling into the bias, looking for the information of seeing why climate change is a conspiracy. And let's say that, you know, David Wallace Wales, he's wrong. He's got confirmation bias and he's found all the scientists who've got a piece of shit science and he's, he's all wrong and the conspiracy theorists are right. It's just a big conspiracy to make a, you know, I think they say it's like a one world government or something like that. Let's say for a second that they're right and the climate change scientists are wrong all very well let's accept there is some possibility of that but the only issue is we've got a sample size of only one Mm -hmm. um if it turns out that they're wrong and the climate change people are right we've only got one planet earth and nothing else to actually move on to yeah it's a fair risk i'd say to you need to weigh up okay what what are the predictions from all these scientists and what sort of the consensus of what these people are saying and weigh that up with the risks of if they're right and compare that to the risks as, okay, maybe it's wrong and maybe it's better to do nothing and just keep going the way we're going. Uh, you need to sort of look at the, the potential consequences that come as a result of either of those. Through all the scenarios, we showed the difference between what the world would be like in two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, five degrees. And there's obviously a lot of uncertainty in all those models and the biggest area of uncertainty is comes down to humans and the actions that we take whatever we do now means what we're going to land on and how uh, what the earth is going to look like in the future because right now we actually have all the tools to shift our economy to become green we can use a carbon tax we have political apparatus to aggressively phase out dirty energy we can find new approaches to agricultural practices and shift away from beef and dairy. And we can do huge public investment in renewable energy and materials. So the solutions are there, um, but it's really us to take it to land on the better side of history. 